I think the first thing to note is that the queen actually has very little practical function. All the references to the queen, the crown, in the constitution are purely, purely symbolic. So really the debate is whether do we want to keep this symbolism or not? Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator who specializes in political theology, the intersection between religion and politics. I'm very excited to welcome to the show Dr. Joshua Neo, who is an associate professor of law at the Australian National University. He teaches courses in legal theory and law and the humanities. His research interest is in the philosophy of law in particular, but also political theology, a man after my own heart. He's the author of the book Law, Love and Freedom, From the Sacred to the Secular, which was published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press. He has some impressive degrees, including a Bachelor of Laws from the ANU, a Master of Laws from Yale and a PhD in law from Cambridge. Joshua, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Joshua, before we launch into our topic, and I don't even know how to introduce this topic, I mean, I don't want to call it a showdown between <laughs> monarchy, monarchism and republicanism, but it's going to be, if you like, a kind of friendly critical dialogue about these two different forms of government. Obviously, I don't need to mention the occasion for this conversation. We are both in Australia right now. We are in a constitutional monarchy, and that monarch recently passed away, Queen Elizabeth II. There is a republican movement in Australia. It's always been on the agenda, well, not always been on the agenda, but since at least the 1990s or perhaps since the Whitlam dismissal back in 1975 when a lot of Australians woke up to the fact that <laughs> the British monarch was actually the head of state in Australia. There has been this live issue bubbling around. We had a constitutional referendum back in 1999 in which I voted, and maybe I'll say more about that in due course, which... Uh, famously went down in flames, didn't even get a majority in <laughs> any state, and only the ACT uh, <laughs> voted for it. Surprise, surprise, which really doesn't mean much given its popu population. And so we were, we're going to have a, a, a nice intellectual discourse about this. But before we dive in, because you are a very interesting person, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? Where are you from? How did you end up in Australia? Because you didn't begin life in Australia. And so, how did you find yourself uh, specialising in the philosophy of law? Yeah, so I grew up in Penang, a tropical island in the northern region of Malaysia. So I did my schooling there. At the end of uh, high school, I was wondering where should I go for university? And I really wanted to see the world and leave the country just to experience a different uh, educational system uh, just broadened my horizon and the Australian National University offered me a scholarship uh, to do my undergraduate degree here. I thought, well, I have never been to Australia at that point. I've heard about it, read about it. Haven't, I, ha 
I haven't stepped foot on Australian soil when I accepted the scholarship. And the next thing I knew, I was in Canberra in the middle of winter. And I remember my first experience on campus. So because I was transitioning from what is essentially a Northern Hemisphere calendar to the Southern Hemisphere. So the first thing I realized is everything is upside down <laughs> in this country. So when I started, I thought I'm starting... Uh, the, in, in a new academic year. So when I came in July, I thought, well, this is a new academic year, but actually I, it's in the middle of academic year in Australia and it's actually the winter break. <laughs> so I came here really cold uh, from the tropics to Canberra winter and the campus was deserted. So the ANU campus, the Yacton campus, there was no one around. It was really cold. I was like, what have I gotten myself into? So that was my first um, experience of Australia, Canberra. Um, so I did my undergraduate degree uh, at the ANU Law School for four years. Uh, why law? It's difficult to say. <laughs> why did I study law? Like many law students that, whom I teach now, I think the reason is just that I've got the grades for it. <laughs> yep. And many law students now, I think they're stumbled into law. It's not as if they have, uh, they know much of what law is before they're enrolled in a Bachelor of Laws. That's sort of my position too. And on top of that, I have this other cultural factor. I have Asian parents. <laughs> and with Asian parents in every kid's life, in every Asian kid's life, round about five, <laughs> you are asked the question would you like to be a doctor or a lawyer <laughs> and well I wanted to be neither but uh, law seems more bearable the lesser of two evils the lesser of two evils my real interest was in philosophy um so law was the price I have to pay to do philosophy. So I enrolled in law and philosophy, philosophy being the other degree. But uh, I had to do law <laughs> uh, in order to come to Australia at all. So yeah. I said, well, law is fine. I'll combine it with philosophy. As so why was I interested in philosophy? That too is difficult to tell, I guess. I mean, I've been always curious about existence. Uh, from a very young age, I've been puzzled and perplexed by death. Not in a suicidal... <laughs> <laughs> like every average young kid, Like every young not in a suicidal sort of way, right? But death sort of fascinated me. I suppose it's the same reason why some kids seem to be interested in music, some in sports. Meaning of existence uh, sort of grabbed my attention. And growing up in Malaysia, philosophy wasn't a thing. So if you have philosophical questions, you pursue it through religion. Mm -hmm. So if you ask your parents, uh, I think my parents is not unusual in that regard, deep existential questions, the, you will be referred to your local priest. Yeah. If you are a, a Christian or a Catholic, and I grew up a Catholic, so I was referred to the priest, right? just as if you are sick, you see a doctor. If you have existential question, you see a priest. <laughs> then, um, so the, I pursued philosophical puzzles in the context of religion. That's because that was the only outlet mm -hmm. I had growing up. And the excess intellectual curiosity was also, also channeled 
through my priests, local parish priests. So when I came to university, when I did philosophy, I finally realized that there's a proper way to ask those questions. When I say proper, I don't mean religion is not the proper way, but a more systematic way of pursuing that inquiry, intellectually rigorous way. So anyway, so in my undergraduate years, I did philosophy and law, and I was moving back and forth between two buildings. <laughs> um, Split personality. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And before then, I realized that I, I could actually combine the two. There is this thing called philosophy of law, and discovering that was an life-changing experience, right? Now I don't have to have that split personality anymore. I don't have to go shuttle back and forth between two buildings. Now you have a well-adjusted, well-integrated personality. That's right. And I could uh, still tell my parents I'm studying law. (laughs) (laughs) So to this day, you can say you're a a kind of lawyer. Yeah, that's right. I think they still think of me as a law lecturer, as a law academic. Um, Philosophy of law, they don't quite grasp, but not just my parents. I think many people don't quite understand. So even in my building, in the law faculty, legal philosophers are often sort of the odd one out. Mm-hmm. Intellectual refugees at the law school, whereas most of my colleagues are studying real law, right? Things that are actually irrelevant to the immediate lives of people. How to write a contract, uh, what to do when you are charged for an offence, criminal law, contract law, constitutional law, trust, inheritance, tax law. And there are always one or two legal philosophers in the midst of all these lawyers that even my colleagues don't quite know what I'm doing. <laughs> but um, they leave me alone by and large. So I'm a bit like an intellectual refugee. At the law school, but legal philosophy, all law schools are on all is so strong. I think most law schools have one or two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Early legal uh, philosophers whom the rest of the faculty tolerates. So, yeah. I'm, uh, so anyways, so I, I realized that legal philosophy, is a, legal philosophy is a field. And then I, if I want to be a legal philosopher, academia is the only way. To be a legal, <laughs> so it's the only, literally the only job for a philosopher of law. That's right. The only that's right, it's either that or I have to do some boring day job that is completely unrelated to legal philosophy and do legal philosophy in the evening <laughs> on my own. How is the only job that pays you to okay, philosophize yeah, yeah. about law? Yeah. Right, because these law firms have no need for a legal philosopher. I mean, well, they'd be strange to go to a law firm and ask them to pay you a salary for basically doing nothing. <laughs> so anyway, so legal philosophy, so my f- first love was legal philosophy and academia was the only job that pays for you to do legal philosophy, so academia. It is after my Bachelor of Laws, I went straight to a Master of Laws specializing in legal philosophy and then after that, a PhD in law also specializing in legal philosophy. So I have three law degrees from... (laughs) (laughs) You have three law degrees and you're useless at a law firm. Useless at a law firm. I actually have not stepped into a law firm at all until I had... That's probably for the best. (laughs) Until, that's right, you wouldn't believe it, right? Until I had to get a conveyancing lawyer to buy a... (laughs) 
You can't even do conveyancing more. <laughs> I can't even do conveyancing myself. Like when I told her, I do conveyancing, and some of my colleagues were saying, You could do it yourself. I said, I haven't signed, I don't know what this document is. So I went to a conveyancer. Yeah. And uh, it was my first experience at a law firm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're probably glad that you didn't go down that route, I'm guessing. That's right. But um, sometimes I wonder, right? Uh, this lawyers, most of the time is boring stuff, <laughs> but occasionally they get fascinating yeah, yeah. Uh, questions that they have to answer. And for those who want to actually make a real difference in the world, law is not a bad path to pursue. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure I care enough about the real world <laughs> to want to make uh, to pursue a practical profession. But if you want to make a difference in the real world, law is a, pre- a pretty practical profession with high impact. Yeah, and pays well. And pays well too. <laughs> so it's not a bad living. Although so, you, you do have to work your butt off, don't you? you? You can't really have a life. That's true, but uh, it pays well. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you could retire at, let's say, 50. Oh, okay. And yeah. never have to work. Yeah. Uh, but then many, some lawyers are so addicted to work that... Uh, they die in the job, probably. Yeah. Well, Joshua, thanks for that. That's fascinating. Speaking of the real world, but also philosophy, let's go to the topic of the day. <laughs> having established that uh, we're both perfectly qualified to have this conversation probably you more than than I am although I do specialize in politics whatever that means okay now the sort of premise of this conversation and we have had one preliminary conversation and it turns out you are a monarchist yes a Malaysian Australia-based Malaysian (laughs) legal philosopher monarchist I, born and bred Australian in this constitutional monarchy, specialising in political (laughs) theology, former public servant, am a kind of Republican, emphasis on kind of. So this is the way we're going going to structure this conversation. You're going to go first. I'm going to invite you to lay out your best case for monarchy and then I will lay out my case for a particularly Australian... Republicanism in the Australian context, and then we'll just let the dialogue emerge from there. Yeah, so before I get, lay out my case, my normative case for monarchy, I'm, I think it might be helpful to start with what the Constitution says, mm-hmm. right? So let me just lay out what the Constitution says. This is not yet a normative case that we should continue with that scheme, mm-hmm. but the, the Constitution as it currently is uh, has few key provisions about the monarchy. I mean, we could begin with the preamble. Let me just read to you the preamble. I, I, it's surprising how few Australians have actually read the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> is it even taught in school? I mean, in America, the US Constitution is a central document. Every school kid will learn the American Constitution. Uh, it is like central to any civic education in the states. I mean, in in Australia, do they teach you the constitution in high school? I I don't recall being taught it at all throughout primary and high school. And if it 
had come up in any substantive way, I'm sure I would have remembered it because like most Australians, until I <laughs> gained an interest well into adulthood, maybe 30s even, I had never read it either. And that that's definitely the case in Australia. And it and it's curious how what little role our constitution actually plays, even in political debates, whereas in the US obviously mm. It is something that the parents fight over. It's like a child <laughs> with both the left and right mm. arguing over what it means, how it's to be read, how judges should should interpret it. In Australia, it's like this absent document. And this will go to part of my case for a republic yeah, because just... in a strange way the monarchy is very absent in Australia and you have to discover it by reading it in the, uh, <laughs> in, the in the document to realise actually... <laughs> We are a constitutional monarchy because I would almost argue we're a de facto republic. Yeah, the monarchy is absent in the day-to-day life of Australians, but so is the constitution. Well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so the preamble of the constitution has this, to me, quite uplifting language, whereas the people of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and Tasmania humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. Now, there is a reference to God Mm. in the preamble. I mean, we do not quite know what to do with it now. (laughs) But there is a reference to God. Have agreed to unite in one indissoluble federal commonwealth. And here comes the important line. Under the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, and under the constitution hereby established. And then the constitution begins. So there is in the preamble a reference to God and a reference to the crown. So it, I think, gives us some insight into what the framers, the drafters, had in mind their worldview uh, in 1901 when the constitution came into effect. For God, king, and country. <laughs> Right, and in that order, right, to God is referred to first, king, the crown, and then the constitution establishing the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the country here, of course, being the Commonwealth, the federal Commonwealth. Right? Australia as a federation came about in 1901. The colonies uh, were founded uh, earlier mm-hmm. uh, than that. So, and The constitution refers to the queen, and this is not Queen Elizabeth. (laughs) This is Queen Victoria. The constitution came into effect on the 1st of January 1901. Queen Victoria died 22 days later, on the Mm -hmm. 22nd of January 1901. But um, the constitution takes care of that. There is a clause which says that the reference to the queen here (laughs) refers to the queen's successors. So it would refer to our current king as well. So the constitution has three main parts to it, three chapters. Chapter 1 refers to the legislature, parliament. Chapter 2, the executive government. And chapter 3, the judiciary. So let me read to you um, section 1 of the constitution. So this is chapter 1, section 1. Chapter 1, the legislature. The very first section uh, of the constitution creates the legislature. And it says, and I quote, the legislative power of the Commonwealth shall be vested in a federal parliament, down the road from where we are recording this (laughs) conversation, which shall consist of the Queen, a Senate, 
and a House of Representatives. So we talk about the parliament as if it, it consists of two parts. Mm. Actually, it has three parts, right? The Queen plus the Senate plus the House of Representatives. So it is bicameral, but it is tripartite. And we know from the Trinity, all good things <laughs> <laughs> comes in three parts. So Section 1 uh, creates the legislature of which the Queen is um, the first part of it. Can I just jump in yes. with a question? Because it just so happens that I was refreshing my memory <laughs> this morning mm. reading through this precise provision of the Constitution and I hadn't actually noticed on previous readings, you know, I was well aware that the executive power is vested in the, the Crown mm. that comes through the Governor-General and I'm sure you're going to get to that because that, that's where it gets really quite shocking if you're <laughs> unaware, mm. if, if you've been enculturated into the Australian political system, it's quite shocking to realise that actually the Constitution seems to suggest something quite different than what is the norm. But I had mm. not appreciated that the the monarch, the British monarch, is a part of the legislature. But I, I found myself mm. wondering, I know the Governor-General on behalf of the Queen um, assents laws mm. and so without that assent of the Governor-General, really the the monarch, mm. then the law doesn't become law even if it's been passed by the parliament. Mm. Is that what it's hinting at here? Exactly what does it mean that the monarch <laughs> is part of the Australian legislature? Yeah, so for a bill to become law, it needs to pass the House of Representatives, pass the Senate and receive royal assent. So it's a three-part process. Mm -hmm. Without royal assent, it is not law. You have correctly framed that, right? Um, it's part of constitutional monarchy that the queen will always assent to laws passed by the two houses. The queen, now king, mm -hmm. in Australia, represented by the governor general, will always provide the assent. But the assent is still needed, mm -hmm. without which there is no law. So. It is a three-stage process, uh, if you like, because the third stage happens as a matter of course, it's almost automatic mm -hmm. that we seldom pay attention to it, but it speaks well to the health of our constitutional monarchy that the sovereign's representative in Australia never <laughs> blocks the popular will of the Senate plus the House. So, but anyway, but royal assent is still required. It's an essential part of the legislative process, an essential part that many Australians are probably unaware of, or even if they know that the Governor-General uh, has to give the royal assent, conceptually they possibly haven't grasped actually that is the, the British Crown exercising a kind of legislative power to enact a law, notwithstanding the fact that they didn't come up with the law yes. and the convention that they will always sign it. It is actually, an, it's a more integral part of the constitutional machinery, it seems, than certainly I had appreciated until rereading it this morning. <laughs> and given that widespread constitutional ig ignorance to which you alluded earlier, <laughs> I'm sure most people are unaware. <laughs> yeah, but that is 
rectified through section two. I mean, the, the, the worry that you have voiced mm-hmm. that really it's uh, a sovereign in the UK, sovereign in London who is signing our bills into laws, that is rectified in section two. So section one lays out the uh, legislature. Section two says, a governor general appointed by the queen shall be Her Majesty's representative in the Commonwealth. So in Australia, in the Commonwealth, the Queen's powers are exercised by her representative in Yarralumla, also down the road from where we are recording. The Governor-General is Australian, born and bred Australian. Now, wasn't originally. It wasn't originally. (laughs) But in recent memory, Let's see. <laughs> oh, I feel like you're being slightly cheeky because because this 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 just to preempt one of my arguments mm. is that as the Constitution is stipulated in the 1901 document, mm. there have been certain evolutions mm. in terms of conventions and customs that show that. Australia has been, I would argue, evolving in a in a certain direction, and one of them mm. is the fact that the original practice, which I guess was logical, based on the the era and the document as it was passed, the Queen's representative in Australia was a British-born mm. subject, and to be fair, mm-hmm. it was relatively early mm. in what is a very short historical time span that I think it was Isaac. Isaacs from Yakandanda. Mm. I happened to visit Yakandanda earlier in the year and they've got a nice distillery. I bought a whiskey <laughs> just for a bit of um, useless, trivial <laughs> information. Uh, and I can't remember what era exactly that was, but there was a shift. And now by convention, it's always an Australian yeah. governor general. Yes, born and bred. That's right. But that shift, I think, also mirrored the shift in the Australian identity. So in 1901, Australian citizenship wasn't really a thing. Yeah, yeah. They were all British subjects. They were just British subjects in this part of the world. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Australian citizenship became a distinct category. We were not just British subjects in this part of the world. Australian citizenship became a separate category. I think with that shift, the Governor General mm-hmm. has also been an Australian citizen yeah. <laughs> and not just a British subject. So, with the Governor General being an Australian today, and it is the Governor General who signs the bills into laws in the name of the Queen, mm-hmm. um, that concern is not entirely a eliminated, but it is reduced Mm -hmm. by having an Australian Governor-General performing the royal assent bit. So I think uh, I I detect what you're alluding to is uh, one of the major arguments of Republicans. Mm. Um, Not one I find the most compelling, I must admit, which is the idea that that the the great offence of the constitutional monarchy that is Australia is the fact that our head of state is not an Aussie <laughs> and is, uh, you know, a Brit and lives 17,000 
kilometers or miles away or whatever it is. And so you are pointing out the fact that that concern at the at, at, at the most, and I'll readily mm. concede this, seems to be attenuated somewhat by mm. the fact that the, the Governor General is and has been for a couple of generations mm. born and bred Australian. <laughs> and lives in Canberra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not only a few kilometres away from us, not 17,000. <laughs> Not all our prime ministers, recent prime ministers have lived in Canada. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so that's section two. Um, section 42 says that every member of the House and every senator has to take an oath. The oath is to the crown. Uh, in fact, the precise words of the oath are prescribed in the constitution. There is no room to modify uh, the oath. Uh, so an oath that is not taken following the prescribed words would be invalid. The person can't take their seat in parliament if they don't use the precise words. I, so-and-so, do swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty, Queen Victoria, or whoever the name of the monarch is, her heirs and successors according to law, so help me God. So that's the uh, oath taking. Again, the reference to king or queen and God mm. in the same sentence um, after the preamble, make the same double reference. So that's uh, the part in chapter 1. Uh, now we move to chapter 2, the executive powers. Section 61 uh, lays out the executive power of the Commonwealth. It is, it, and it says, the executive power of the Commonwealth is vested in the Queen and is exercisable by the Governor-General as the Queen's representative. Right, so again, there is the vesting of executive power in the Queen and that reflects the very old Westminster Convention that it is Her Majesty's government. Mm -hmm. right? The government governs in the name of Her Majesty. And the ministers of state in section 64 are called the Queen's ministers of state for the Commonwealth. And just sorry to interrupt, these are like defence minister the Treasurer, the Minister of Foreign Affairs. That's right. They are constitutionally the Queen's ministers. For the Commonwealth. For the Commonwealth. That's right. They're the Queen's ministers. And sometimes we know who they are, sometimes we don't know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but they are sworn in by the Governor-General. Uh, They're appointed by the Governor-General and when Morrison appointed himself, or rather advised the Governor-General to appoint himself to various secret ministries, there is no requirement of publicity because, and that is really nothing to do with monarchy or not, that is because in the Westminster model, the executive government is appointed by the head of state as the head of state's minister. Mm -hmm. And our head of state is the Queen, represented by the Governor-General, so the ministers are the Queen's ministers. 
So this is the executive power. Section 68 um, is important because it talks about the commander-in-chief. The commander-in-chief of the naval and military forces of the Commonwealth is vested in the Governor-General as the Queen's representative. So again, we have the, the civilian power vested in the Queen, but as well as the military power also vested in the Queen. So that is what the Constitution says. Now, any move to a republic would require <laughs> a massive rewriting mm -hmm. of all these sections of the Constitution. So now I'm switching heads from laying out the terms of the Constitution to saying why I think we should probably not touch it. <laughs> I think the first thing to note is that the Queen actually has very little practical function. All the references to the Queen, the Crown, in the Constitution are purely, purely symbolic. So really the debate is whether do we want to keep this symbolism or not? Even the most ardent monarchists in Australia or in the UK are not advocating for any actual effective power to be given to the monarch, but merely for the monarch to retain that symbolic power. So I think most of my reasons are really geared towards the power of symbols. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it is, of course, open to someone who does not see value in symbolism. They say, well, I don't care much for symbols. Now, at that point, we are just disagreeing over aesthetics. Uh, and there is really nothing more to be said. I mean, beauty lies in the eyes of the beholder. <laughs> <laughs> Right, but this is a quibble over aesthetics, over a sense of grandeur and beauty, and I think having the Queen in the Constitution adds a sense of grandeur to the constitutional text. I'm, I will try to lay out my case as to why. One could separate out two uh, lines of argument here. One could ask first whether is there value in having a king? And secondly, one could ask whether is there a value in having an English king, mm -hmm. right? They are related, but uh, they're actually distinguishable. So let me just address the value of the king first before talking about the value of the English king. Right? So the value of the king, to me at least, are threefold. First, there is this very old idea of embodiment to use a more religious language, incarnation, right? That the king has two bodies. The king has a physical body, but his physical body embodies the body politic, mm -hmm. right? The body, or the body politic resides, or the body politic is incarnated in his physical body. We see that really clearly in the in rituals like the royal funeral, where the body of the dead monarch, the dead queen, is paraded uh, ceremonially in a royal procession through the streets of London. 
and is laid in state in the Grand Hall of uh, uh, in Westminster Hall. So that physical body has immense symbolic power. We'll see that again in the royal coronation where it is the body of the king that is crowned and anointed in the cathedral. Now, it is difficult to imagine how a head of state could perform that function because the royal succession is also draws on this sense of embodiment. The body of this king came out of the body of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, in, uh, in as brute and uh, biological. That's quite literal, yeah. <laughs> quite literally, right? It's flesh from flesh, body from body. A head of state where you are the head of state one day and head of state the, and cease to be head of state the next is problematic if you, uh, you buy into this symbolic embodiment theory. So abdication has always been an anomaly. The problem with abdication is that you have King Edward running around. His body is still there, but he's no longer the king. His body once carried within it the symbolic power of the state, but now his body no longer does that and he's like walking around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so abdication has always been an anomaly, whereas... Uh, a monarch who dies in office better comports with this old idea, even if it is an aging body. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a head of state performing that role, the head of state is a head of state for five years, ceases to be so. So we have many former governors, governors general <laughs> roaming around the place. We are less perturbed by it because, after all, the Governor-General only represents the Sovereign. So we can have a revolving door of Governors-General, but if you have a revolving door of Monarchs, that sort of doesn't quite work. Okay, so anyway, so that's embodiment, the symbolic power of embodiment. Second, the power of having a microcosm. So we, there's an old theory of the state which sees the nation as one big family, and at the heart of it, is a real family, an actual family, and we call that the royal family. So at the heart of it is a royal family. There is a, some kind, there's a microcosm, macrocosm relationship. The nation is a macrocosm of the royal family, which is the microcosm. One interesting feature of the royal family as a microcosm of the state is that it cuts across the public-private divide, right? The private life of the royal family is the public's business. <laughs> and this sort of justifies me reading tabloids, <laughs> right? I like to read royal gossip, and I feel less bad reading royal gossip because, after all, their private life is a constitutional matter. So, so you must be the only person in Australia, Joshua, who has philosophical justifications or royal for gossip. reading <laughs> the gossip of the royal family. That's right. I mean, because 
Think about it. Their reproductive capacity is a constitutional matter. It matters the, that the, the successor to the monarch is a progeny, a biological progeny of the monarch. The reproductive capacity there is not just some private business. We have an interest <laughs> in their reproduction. Now, that is important, I suppose, because it is a counter-image. It's a corrective to modernity's relentless separation of the public from the private. This is a carryover from an older way of viewing the world, which does not really separate the public from the private. We have now separated the public from the private, but having an occasional reminder <laughs> that here we have an institution where the, their private life is a public matter. It provides a good balance. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, and this is the third aesthetic point, really, and when all of this symbolic power is reflected in the terms of the constitution, the queen, the crown, allegiance to the queen, once it's properly, properly appreciated that way, it gives the constitutional text a particular grandeur that can't otherwise be provided. When I swear allegiance to the Queen, when this is Her Majesty's ministers who are running the country, it's not as if the Queen actually, or the King now, does anything. But the importation of that symbolic power into the text of the Constitution gives the Constitution a kind of dignity that I think is quite difficult to replicate otherwise. So those are all arguments for why we should have a king. It doesn't quite answer why we should have an English king. It's, I suppose, more difficult uh, to explain why we should have an English king. I mean, if we are starting from scratch, we probably will not go to England <laughs> <laughs> and uh, pick their king as our king, but it, we already have an English king. It is our last remaining legal and constitutional connection to the Commonwealth and to England. So if we value retaining some kind of symbolic connection to the UK, this is the last <clears throat> remaining one. It's a pretty harmless connection. Uh, if you're going to maintain some symbolic connection, this is as harmless as it gets. We used to have more significant connection. Appeals used to be able to go from the High Court of Australia to the Privy Council in London, and London could overrule the decision of the Australian High Court. That is real interference. Now, having an English king is not much of an interference because our Governor General is uh, local. And we don't have an established church, which is a good thing. The Particularly British, if you're a Catholic. <laughs> The British does have an established church. An established church, I think, sort of adds to the aura of the monarchy. It's difficult to think about a royal funeral and a royal coronation having the liturgical power that it has without some kind of 
religious ritual, backing it or giving it its uh, beauty without the bells and smells <laughs> of it all. So we could have a king with an established church uh, to give it all the bells and smells without having to have an established church ourselves. So we get the benefit without the cost. <laughs> and we don't even have to pay <laughs> to maintain that institution. We just um, let the Brits pay <laughs> and we get the benefit of that. So there are some uh, uh, perks to having an English king. Now, my third and final reason, it's uh, about, uh, it's a comparative one. Would an Australian head of state be any better? No, we'll, we will lose everything that I have said if we switch to an Australian head of state. I am not sure how much we gain. We risk creating an alternative centre of power. So if we think Governor General sacking the Prime Minister was shocking, mm -hmm. imagine a uh, a, a, a head of state with his or her own mandate, that would even be more troublesome. I think having an... If we want a head of state who reigns but does not rule, who does not meddle in our politics, an absent king is as good as it gets, right? You want an absent king who just sits on the throne but don't mess around. And I think that uh, 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 a, head, a king in England can do that because it's absent, is not here. And a governor general who represents the king here because it's just a representative might be less, uh, Kerr is an exception, <laughs> but other governor general might be less willing to interfere and meddle. And in any case, we know that the prime minister can advise the king to dismiss the governor general if the governor general proved to be meddlesome. In that regard, I think if we are worried about creating creating a head of state that interferes with the running of our government, we should have an absent king as the head of state. So Jonathan, you will now tell me why I'm wrong <laughs> on the, all these uh, points. Uh, look, I will, but, but I will concede that, they, that the first thing I'll concede is actually to agree that there are definitely there is a I will concede there is a, a symbolic power or powerful symbolism mm. that comes from monarchy per se, and that comes I'll go even further and say that that particularly comes from the constitutional monarchy that is Australia, mm. and one of its biggest arguments, uh, which you didn't go into, but I but I imagine you might actually mm -hmm. share is a is a kind of historical sim symbolism mm. of the origins of Australia and mm. and becoming a republic will sever to some extent, mm. but only to some extent, mm. uh, that historical connection and the fact that the British monarch does, to use your wonderful language, kind of embody the history of Australia mm. and the fact that it was that crown mm. that set up the, established the colonies mm -hmm. and effectively governed through various representatives mm. and even once uh, responsible government emerged in the colonies, that, that is a stable fixture mm. of 
Australian political history and to some extent cultural life. So I think becoming a republic definitely uh, loses mm. something. But I, the question is, and I totally agree, that this really is a clash of symbolism. Mm. And that that's actually what makes this a meaningful discussion, not just the literal discussion we're mm. having, but I think it's a worthwhile and in a way unavoidable discussion that a nation like Australia has to have as a consequence of its very unique foundations mm. where unlike America, there isn't a moment where we sort of rebel from our parents, mm. go out on our own and forge our own identity. It's a very slow, iterative, evolutionary process mm. done peacefully <laughs> and by consensus mm. where Australia bit by bit mm. and people need to understand and you, you reference this, it doesn't end with the creation of the Commonwealth of Australia. Mm. Citizenship comes in in the 40s. I think that Pri Privy Council thing happened even later, was it later, 70s, that's right. 80s? 70s, 80s. And so uh, I note that we, we gave up God Save the Queen in 1974, I think mm. it was. So we only got an Australian national anthem in the <laughs> 70s. So there is this long process, and this is actually one of my arguments mm. for a republic. But before I dive into that, it is worth noting because this, mm. this is what makes – I need to be very clear about this. Mm. I'm a, um, I only support the minimalist version of republicanism. And I am bitterly opposed to the directly elected model. Mm. And so I will take the constitutional monarchy mm -hmm. any day. In fact, I will actually campaign against a directly <laughs> elected model. Mm. And I hope you share my view mm. here that that would be utterly disastrous because mm. it unavoidably creates another power centre because a directly elected uh, president, and this is a version, of a version of this is actually what the Australian Republic movement champions at the moment they call it the australian choice uh model emphasis mm -hmm. on choice and they're they're trying to split the difference with the minimalist version <laughs> that i support which is actually mm. the john howard one that went down in flames and i did vote in favor <laughs> of it actually in 1999 mm. so i realize i'm in probably the least popular camp there mm. are probably more constitutional <laughs> monarchists and more direct election republicans out there but the the current model mm. that the Australian Republic movement wants to try and get us to go to a referendum, and I stress I'll be voting against it, is each state nominates one candidate, the mm. federal parliament nominates three, and then there's a direct election, much like the federal election, mm. proportional voting, and and basically you're going to get a president mm. that may end up winning, mm. not may, I think very likely <laughs> will end up Mm. winning a much higher vote than the sitting Prime Minister. Mm. That's an absolute disaster in my view and it will, will inevitably end up with the American model. Uh, no disrespect to my American <laughs> listeners. But that would be, I concede, a, a radical um, break from the, mm. the model we we have. And, and part of part of my argument for the minimalist version, it's, it's a double-edged sword mm. argument because it actually turns around some of your best arguments mm. because – they can go either way and it does come down to the aesthetic sense. So the minimalist model, just for those trying to follow at home, <laughs> mm. that went to the 19 – went down in flames <laughs> in 1999 is a model where the the prime minister, I think, nominates a governor general, much like mm -hmm. he or she does mm -hmm. at the moment. But instead of the queen approving by convention, it then goes to a parlementary vote and it has to garner two-thirds mm -hmm. majority – 
And in that model, I think the leader of the opposition also had to approve of it. But I don't know how that would... Yeah, if you're going to get two-thirds of the vote, that means you're going to have some of the opposition anyway. Mm. And this model is, in effect, there's a similar model in Greece, I think, mm. and some of the other republics uh, around the world. That was, of course, uh, demonised by the direct, direct, directly elected model mm. Republicans as the politician's choice. Mm. Yes, that's exactly what I want because that is actually the closest model, mm. which I think would entail the the, the minimal constitutional change mm. and would not represent a huge departure from the existing model. And that that in a way is is in deference to some of your arguments, mm. Joshua, in recognition that actually the current model is sound. And mm. I want to stress that I, I actually have no in principle objection. <laughs> Mm. to a constitutional monarchy mm. and I want to be on the record, not that it matters, but <laughs> not, that it, not that it wants to take account of the record, but that's what you say when you're on, you know, <laughs> that, uh, you know, on my deathbed, mm. if I die in this constitutional monarchy, I can assure you I'm going to give no, I'll have no regret that I didn't die in a republic. It's not, it's not that kind of uh, issue uh, for me. So why... That, that begs the question, mm. of course, Ed, and you said to me so over coffee a few weeks ago when we mm. first met that the kind of model, the good news is that the model I'm in favour of more or less exists mm. now because we kind of have a de facto Australian head of state. That mm. was your point about the Governor-General being an Australian. It is the politician's Who uh, president <laughs> because it's even, it's even uh, right now it's, just, it's in some ways even more conservative because it's just the Prime Minister's mm. uh, pick and I, and I do think your point about the absent monarch actually is very mm. powerful. I want, I want to really concede that because in a way, arguably, the fact that our head of state is not an Australian mm. probably makes it less likely that he or she will interfere mm. in what is functionally a, a sovereign mm. country. And it would be such a big deal versus, say, exercising their executive power in the British context, if mm. there was some gridlock or something going wrong, that's a much less significant step mm. than rejecting a prime Australian Prime Minister's <laughs> choice uh, for Governor General mm. or exercising their executive power. But you, you made an interesting point, jo mm. Joshua, which, which is well made, that given the the... The fact that our actual constitution sets out a form of polity that's very different from the, the way Australia is actually governed, mm. it would actually entail very significant redrafting. Mm. This is not like the, the referendum question Anthony Albanese wants to put to the people. Do you want mm. an Aboriginal, uh, Indigenous, First Nations voice? Mm. The language keeps changing. <laughs> Do you want a First Nations voice to Parliament? Full mm. stop. It's going to take, <laughs> it's going to be a much mm. more complex constitutional change. But this is precisely one reason, well, at least in the directly mm. elected model, probably less so in my model. Mm. But this goes to one of my, one of my biggest concerns with the monarchy, and mm. that is, we are governed by a convention, mm. not really by our constitution. And so you have these funny things like cabinet and prime minister, mm. the two most important 
executive institutions in the governance of Australia are not mentioned in the constitution. Mm. And in fact, there's this thing called the Federal Executive <laughs> Council, which is, you know, the, the correct me if I'm wrong, mm. but the original vision, well, I say original vision, but, I, but I'm, I'm conscious that they were trying to implement a kind of Westminster style model. Mm. And so they were probably, they probably had in mind certain conventions that were already in operation mm. in the British parliament at, at the time to be, uh, to be fair. But the model is that the Governor General really rules and that the ministers, not mm. Prime Minister, mm. not mentioned, but ministers mm. have an advisory capacity and are there to advise the Governor General mm. on, I guess, policy matters and to, I guess, administer <laughs> the, the policies and the, and, the, and the laws. I guess the legislature sort of is more democratic and that was democratic from the from the beginning but for me it means see look the conventions have been very stable mm. i'll acknowledge that but but f for me and this is kind of thinking like like a security analyst and, <laughs> and with a bit of emphasis on sovereignty we are quite unique in australia mm. in that a foreign head of state constitutionally mm. perhaps not in practice but mm. constitutionally has enormous executive power in Australia mm. that could be exercised. I know the argument is it'll never happen, it's so unlikely, the conventions are so stable, look how dignified mm. Queen Elizabeth II was and she was dignified. I think she lived a very dignified and honourable mm. uh, life. But you've got to think 30, 50, 100, 200 years down the track. So if Prince William, mm. God forbid, should pass away, mm. then... Harry, not anymore, but he, he would have been next in line. Mm. There's no guarantee that the British monarch for the next two to 500 years, assuming we're all here, <laughs> is going to abide by the conventions, be wise, defer to the, to the Prime Minister's judgment. Mm. It also assumes the United Kingdom remains a stable monarchy. Mm. Wouldn't it be a bit of a crisis if there was a revolution <laughs> there? And I know all this sounds is easily dismissed because mm. there's no evidence that any of this is about to happen. But again, mm. I invite people to think longer term. You you know, our fate is oddly tied mm. <laughs> to the stability, the personality and the functioning, mm. the wisdom, the embodiment <laughs> <laughs> of a foreign head of state. And I, I, I feel like that is a security risk. It might be an unlikely security risk, but I actually think it makes more sense for all nations to be fully sovereign. Mm. Now, that's not to say you won't lose certain powerful symbolic mm. things. For me, that's a price uh, worth paying. And I and I, I, I do worry just on the, the sort of your embodiment point, mm. which is really interesting, because I think when monarchy works well, mm. I will agree. That, it, that there is a kind of mystique and majesty mm. Mm. and grandeur to it. And I agree it kind of it adds a, a je ne sais quoi or a frisson <laughs> of something in our constitution, it makes it interesting, mm. makes us a bit, a bit different. But the counter case, and you kind of alluded to it, mm. is the celebrification of monarchy these days. <laughs> and, and again, you know, the former Prince Harry, I don't know, have no idea what his status is now because it's all <laughs> quite discombobulating. <laughs> but there's no 
there's no guarantee, particularly in the hereditary monarchy, mm. once you subject yourself to the genetic, genetic lottery, mm. sure, you tick the embodiment box mm. and there is something in the familial continuity mm. and and even I'm attracted to your kind of microcosm, macrocosm mm. argument because I like grand theories and um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not against symbolism actually. I think it's it's more meaningful than a lot of people think and I'll make a point about how I would address that in my mm. minimal, minimalist body. But there is no guarantee that the passage from one monarch to their progeny mm. will uphold that grandeur. In fact, they could tarnish it. Mm. They could <laughs> bring it into disrepute. Uh, so what, what do you lose with an Australian head of state, which, mm. which, I, which I, I readily grant has none of that grandeur. It's mm. a kind of very almost bureaucratic, mm. dour, unsexy, <laughs> unexciting uh, figurehead. Mm. That's what I love about it. The fact that there are these governor, <laughs> governors general running around and you wouldn't even recognise them, <laughs> you wouldn't know if they were your neighbour, is exactly that's what you gain versus what you lose. So mm. the best governor general is never going to perform that symbolic and embodiment role mm. that the greatest monarch can. Mm. But you're going to avoid... The, ty the tyranny and the debasement of the monarchy that I think is possible and I think there is historical evidence for this mm. because they're just going to be even keel nobodies <laughs> and that's kind of the whole point. And again, it depends where you want to put the mm. emphasis. So in my case, you have to sacrifice the grandeur and you have to look for it elsewhere. You have to sacrifice some symbolism. Mm. You do have to look for it elsewhere. But also you avoid, I think, some of the problems that come come because I think there, there, there's kind of a relationship, isn't mm. there? So the, the more that any figure embodies the community, mm. the greater harm that can come when they fail <laughs> <laughs> in, their, in their duty. Now, I do take the symbolism point very seriously mm. uh, and I do agree that the, it's a kind of aesthetic element to this mm. debate. I'm... I'm probably in favour of the most minimal, minimalist model that you can think of, which probably means I'm almost a, ref a, a sort of a Republican refugee myself. <laughs> and I find a lot of Republicans intolerable, I must, I must, <laughs> must admit, because I just find their arguments crass and, and uh, phony and I don't think they actually take seriously mm. monarchy. Mm. And what distinguishes me is that I actually think monarchy is legitimate. I don't actually have... <laughs> A moral objection to certainly not a constitutional monarchy. I would retain the Australian flag mm. because that I was thinking of. Well, the Australian flag. And I know this is a you know there are Republicans that want to change mm. the flag. I'll be manning the um, the pro. <laughs> the, I'll be leading the march against that too. That that flag is one way of both acknowledging the British origins because we have their flag in mm. our flag mm. and the historical uh, continuity, and mm. I like that as I think I indicated to you over <laughs> coffee that time, I would not actually call our head of state a president. I would retain the language of governor general mm. also as a way of building in a bit of historical continuity, mm -hmm. a bit of uniqueness and a nod. I would literally make the most minimal uh, change possible. But the, the, the final thing, and I alluded mm. to this earlier, is because I, I think – I think monarchists have to acknowledge, and you did, mm. I think you implicitly acknowledge this. I know you, you would acknowledge it explicitly <laughs> too, 
I'm going to, going, I'm going, <laughs> I'm going to lock you into acknowledging it explicitly. And that is that Australian culture has evolved. Mm. We now have, what, 49, 50% of Australians with at least one parent born overseas. My wife, for example, is Greek. She not only feels no attachment to the British monarchy, she can't stand monarchy because it was an absolute disaster in Greece. Mm. And this that's illustrative of the problem with the embodiment. So just as a quick mm. di- digression, when Greece became independent after four centuries of um, Ottoman rule in 1832, the uh, existing monarchies in Europe, Western Europe at the time, who sort of backed, guaranteed this new state, decided that it had to be a monarchy. Greece had never really been a country, had never been a constitutional monarchy. That wasn't part of really of its its history. And so what king did it get? It got a Lutheran Danish king who was not ethnically Greek, was not of their uh, religion and was a foreigner and he didn't last long. And so then they replaced him with a Catholic Bavarian king <laughs> in what the Greeks call the... Um, Vavarokratia, mm. the Bavarian ocracy. Mm. And he brought in a whole bunch of Bavarians to, to run the government. Now, eventually it went through the same process that the Governor-General in Australia did. Mm. And eventually you got Greek-born kings who became Orthodox mm. and spoke uh, Greek. But they had a civil war after the Second World War and the, the Brits, because there, there was a, a kind of constitutional revolution, they briefly became a republic leading up to the war. The Brits wanted to impose a monarchy and so they came in and there was a referendum mm. that historians think was doc- was um, <laughs> was fraudulent and the Greeks reacted. There were communists versus uh, monarchists and they had a bloody conflict. And to cut a long story short, the, the monarchy came to what seems like a permanent end in the 70s mm. uh, during the right-wing dictatorship of the the so-called colonels from 1967 mm. to 1974. I realise this is the, the most detailed digression <laughs> in history, but... Greek history is one of my passionate uh, obsessions. So, and the Duke, the former Duke of Edinburgh. Yeah, 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 exactly. Greek prince. Yes, yeah, born on uh, Corfu, I think, or one of those islands. And anyway, that that king was kicked out, rightly or wrongly. It's a very controversial matter. He denies it. He's still alive. He, mm. he lives in Spain. I think he married into the Spanish royal family uh, for approving of the military dictatorship. Mm. So, the point is that I don't know what the point is anymore from that digression, <laughs> but what I, what I want to say is that the embodiment question mm. can change and the culture can change. And so that's right. I was the point about my, my wife. So her experience of mm. monarchy, partly thanks to the state education in Greece, <laughs> which is which certainly was a bit propagandistic back in the eighties, <laughs> let, let me tell you. Uh, so I just used her, I meant to use her to exemplify the changing social fabric of Australia, mm. where for a lot of people there is no emotional attachment to particularly the British monarchy. Mm. It doesn't actually embody their religion, their faith, their history, mm. their ethnicity. And in a funny way, multiculturalism has become an, the Australian identity. Mm. In a way, it wasn't actually in 1901. Mm. The term was unknown. We were not a multicultural society. We were we were a multi-religious and multi-ethnic society, but the policy of multiculturalism has changed literally the face and character of Australia. We have been on this journey of slowly separating mm. from the United Kingdom. 
not not that we're not allies and friends. We are, <laughs> of, of course. I love going to the UK as much as anyone, and it is the most um, of all the countries I've been to. Mm. It is the one you feel that is the closest and does feel connected because it's an important part of our history. And of course, I wouldn't exist if my um, English, Irish, and Scottish ancestors didn't didn't come here. But the process has been going in one direction mm. towards tying, cutting off each of those remaining symbolic, like mm -hmm. the God Save the Queen National Anthem, the mm. citizenship has been severed. And so, it, and this is what I meant by the, the argument for not changing it mm. can also double as the argument for changing. So that one argument for not mm. changing is, well, we've gone, we are, you probably wouldn't use this language, but I'll say in a way we are a de facto republic because the Queen's absent. She doesn't exercise mm. any of her constitutional powers or now the King, it's, we keep struggling to adjust. And we have got rid of a lot of the symbols in practice. Mm. No one feels British unless maybe you've migrated here from the United Kingdom. So why sever this purely symbolic holdover that has some virtues like, like mm. you say, well, the same argument is why not cut it? Why why cut the garment all the way to the last <laughs> thread and then arbitrarily hang on to the last thread <laughs> <laughs> on the argument that it's the last thread when you have literally severed <laughs> all of the other. So anyway, that was not quite as systematic as, as yours, but there, that in a way, a somewhat rambly way, which is my style, it's the way my mind works, <laughs> Are the reasons why I'm in favour of a minimalist constitutional change that retains as much of the symbolism as possible, but acknowledges that some symbolism will be lost, but that that sacrifice is make, worth making uh, for Australia in recognition that we we have effectively become a de facto republic and culturally, I don't think the monarchy plays that symbolic function in most people's lives, and mm. I think there's a security concern, but. I'm not the legal scholar, so <laughs> I'm open to an argument that says that is misplaced. Yeah. Given our shared interest in political theology, let me make a religious analogy here that might, I suppose, draw out our difference uh, in perspective here. So I often think about the difference between monarchists and republicanism, including the minimalist republicans, as the difference between high church and low church. <laughs> Right? I mean, the low church is eminently rational. In mm -hmm. fact, the whole idea of the low church is to create a more rational religion. Right? And I think there's a lot of rationality built into the Republican model. Mm -hmm. A minimalist or maximalist, there is, it does have reason on its side. The high church doesn't quite appeal to reason. Right, it's all very mysterious and um, f filled with mystique. Right, I mean, why does the celebrant have to dress in cassocks and have bells and smells and funny hats? <laughs> <laughs> there is actually no reason mm. for it. I mean, there's not even really theological reason. No, not really at all. It's purely aesthetic. There is a kind of irrational pull to it, 
right? And I think that's reflected in people who are drawn to the high church service and, and those who are drawn to low church service. I'm thinking more of the Church of England where you have this option mm-hmm. to be in the church and yet you can go to either high church or low church. Whereas in the Catholic church, everything is high. <laughs> in uh, some Protestant denominations, everything is low. Yeah. Right, but the Church of England is a good example where they, you have some options. So in the low church, you is rational, rationalistic. In the high church, it's all mysterious. I tend to think of perhaps in a constitutional monarchy like Australia, we might be a broad church. There is a lot of rational elements already in our politics. We have trimmed everything off the, the symbolism and we have rationalized it. Perhaps the reason why to keep, to, we have been trimming the garment, but we should leave a thread hanging <laughs> because there might be some people who are drawn to this kind of irrational, mysterious uh, power that the monarchy provides and to allow us to be as broad a church as possible, we create a space for this um, aesthetic sensibility to continue to operate for those who like it. Mm -hmm. For those who don't like it, as you have said, we are already a de facto republic. <laughs> so you can live as though you're in a republic. Yeah, those who, that's right, just as uh, many Anglicans do. Yeah. Um, you can think of your church in as low a term as you want or as high a term as well. So those who are attracted to a republican model, we are already a de facto republic. For those who are drawn to a monarchy, they can cling on to the symbol. That seems to me be a, to be a reasonable compromise between two camps. As to and of course that only works if the king doesn't actually interfere. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so far the king has not. But he hasn't had an opportunity yet. <laughs> <that's right. laughs> if and when the king interferes. We could cut him off <laughs> at that point, right? So that, and I think the king knows that that the king is the king because so long as he does nothing, mm-hmm. and because he knows that, that's partly why the king and previously the queen has not interfered. Their ability to remain on the throne relies on them being able to do nothing. Yeah. Which is actually pretty difficult to do, right? Doing nothing is perhaps the most difficult thing to do in the world. Certainly in an age where everyone's got an opinion and has the <laughs> technology to distribute it and disseminate it. And yeah, right. I mean, dignified silence. Yeah. But because they do nothing, we could actually have a system which caters to both sides. Both sides have something. Yeah. Out of it. I mean, the relentless pursuit of rationality to its logical conclusion, which is to remove the last threat, might be alienating uh, for some and perhaps unnecessarily so. Yeah. So I think that it's uh, would you be happy to live and let live? <laughs> well, 
Yes, but, but it does raise some interesting philosophical questions that I want to put to you. I say yes because effectively I do, that in that I realise I live in a constitutional monarchy. Mm. I say I live in a de facto republic. Mm. One of the things that struck me about the Queen's death was just how, and monarchists weren't like hearing this, it, it didn't affect me at all. Mm. It was like watching a stranger. Mm. She was, a, for me, a celebrity figure that I had to remind myself through an act of reasoning was my head of state because, for me, she didn't actually embody anything. She was the Queen of England mm. and she was so absent in my mind and I'm someone who follows politics avidly that there was a strange disjuncture for me. Mm. It was like, oh, yeah, actually, Australia's got a new... <laughs> monarch <laughs> and it, it was this, this strange interruption into my political conception mm. of what Australia is because that is is possible. So in, in a strange way I think I'm conscious that I live in both worlds. So I agree mm. that in a strange way the monarchists and the republicans could, although they don't and mm. I think that's significant, mm. uh, monarchists tend to to be very, um, in my view, insecure about the idea of republicanism and would not be willing to concede like you are that, that there are republican elements actually mm. in it and there's a tradition of literature that notes, you know, the whole federal system, the Senate and the, mm. and the lower house and certain things uh, do come from republic, the tradition of republican thought and de facto the, the monarch doesn't actually exercise any of the executive powers accorded him or her in the constitution which does mean it functions by convention mm. more like a republic where the prime minister is kind of the de facto head of state mm. who kind of delegates the more boring tasks like cutting ribbons and having official dinners to the governor general who let's face it the real head of state the prime minister actually appoints and mm. it's just through this uh conventional footwork that it happens but here's the philosophical question so that so the point is you can conceptualise in a very different way the same political reality mm. as you and I do because I, I think we agree on all the facts. There's no yeah. dispute over the facts. It's it's really about the meaning mm. and we derive different meaning mm. from the same political circumstance. And it, this really goes to me to, I don't know if it's fair to call it a criticism, but a question I want to ask you about the... I'll admit, very attractive sort of symbolic embodiment argument you make about the monarchy. And I note as a conservative that this has a kind of historical pedigree. This is a much older <laughs> kind of conception of politics than, than republicanism uh, really. And that is that an act of imagination is required on the part of the citizen or the subject in order to give reality to this embodiment. So when, it, when, I, when I say I felt nothing, that is that the British monarch didn't actually symbolise or um, embody for me anything personally, that I'm arguing, I don't want to get into psychology here, but I'm <laughs> arguing that that was not a conscious thing, that was just my feeling. And I know, and I one of the things I observed during this was the different reactions people had. So monarchists were moved because they, it, you know, there's no doubting the kind of love and admiration they had, particularly for this monarchy, this monarch that 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 passed, and and the feeling 
is genuine regarding the monarchy. So I, I, I can see that it really means something profound for them and it is wrapped up in their identity. I find it strange because it doesn't mm. affect me. With my wife, it actually repels her, like she's an anti-monarchist, <laughs> but that's a, that's a kind of Greek thing. I'm not an anti-monarchist. And so it just, it just made me think that the, the kind of argument you lay out there's no, I don't doubt mm. that that's profound in, in a way compelling for you, but that there's something required on the part of the subject, isn't mm. there, to acknowledge <laughs> the embodiment. And if you don't, it evaporates and then they become, in my view, a strange celebrity figure, <laughs> like one of the most oddest celebrities. Mm. But effectively they look no different to me than the Hollywood um, celebrity. That's certainly what the coverage is like, the the lifestyles. Even the kind of social causes they get involved in, a lot of pop stars and actors get involved in and they tend to use their big platforms for the same reason and they're all wealthy. Now, I know I'm not saying uh, my, my argument's not that you have mistaken sort of crass celebrity for symbolism because I think through that active imagination and that kind of conceptual world, you can see something in the monarch that you, that I think would be false if you tried to do it with Lady Gaga, for, for example. <laughs> but I know I'm not alone, mm. certainly in Australia. And this goes, you know, there is this argument that Australia is kind of, you know, that de facto republicanism also goes down to the, the aesthetic, not the aesthetic, but the, the feeling of the people. So I know I'm not alone in a lot of people for whom the death of the monarch was some strange, fascinating. It was like being at the zoo and seeing some exotic animal that's not part of your species. That is, there's no connection, mm. actual real connection, and that's where I think the 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 monarchy movement's in a bit of danger in Australia because I don't think you can manufacture that connection. Some people, for whatever reason, see what you see <laughs> in the monarch, and I can understand it conceptually, mm. but I don't feel it um, at all. Even though I can, I can see that in, and, and I totally, your point about the rationalistic, I totally accept that. You know, I'm, I'm looking for a very functional political system, which arguably is so mundane. I say this as a Christian, mm. I realize it, it's, it's very um, desacralized, mm. but I am, a, I am actually, as it happens, my upbringing is in low church Anglican evangelicalism, <laughs> and they're not big on symbolism. Mm. In fact, a sort of constitutive element of their whole identity is rejecting Catholic <laughs> symbolism that is deemed to be misleading or problematic mm. or, or whatever, you know, the whole smashing of the, the chapels devoted to Mary in, in English um, churches. So I, I wonder what do you make of this idea that to some extent it depends on the – it seems like the objective reality to some extent is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, I think a good – constitutional arrangement is one that is able to speak in different voices or to use a different metaphor, a good constitutional arrangement will look differently to different people. That is not a weakness and it's not a bug but a feature <laughs> of the system, right? A monarchist can look at the constitutional arrangement and find a bit of what they want. <laughs> a Republican can look at the constitutional arrangement and find a bit of what they want and neither get the full package, but both 
they glitter and shine differently depending on the angle. Yeah. Yeah, you look at it and that speaks to a durable constitutional arrangement, right? That the monarchists, republicans can live and let live and both can see what they want in the constitutional arrangement. And that is because partly the mode of the Australian uh, political evolution, it is not a revolution like the Americans, it is piecemeal, bit by bit, we tweak a little bit here, tweak a little bit there. The result of which is that the, the change is so slow that we retain bits and pieces of the old and the new together, and those who are drawn to the old can still have a bit there, and those who are drawn to the new can have a bit there, as opposed to the Americans who just smashed everything and start again. In that regard, it I think is the strength of our system and the current and the current model. So a bit like the Church of England, the Church of England has never really had the Martin Luther moment, right? It's a very piecemeal change. And by the way, I think it also reflects your republicanism and my. Um, Monarchy, monarchist sentiments might actually be traceable to our religious upbringing. Well, I'll, I'll, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to actually push this point because let, let me tell you how it looks from my Protestant yes. lens, and then you can respond from your Catholic lens. So I can, in a way, although this doesn't actually work out in practice, I have, <laughs> I have many very evangelical and even Pentecostal friends who mm. are. Uh, uber pro monarchists of the kind of very, you know, like like picture of the queen on the wall style, like really trying to make a point to Republicans <laughs> like me. And so it, it clearly, and, and I'm, I mean, you only have to look at Northern Ireland to know that there are Catholic places <laughs> that, that where Republicanism can, can become a form of extremism mm. even. But I can see how from a Catholic perspective, uh, and I thought it was interesting how you you did mention earlier that there is this loss of there is this in a way arbitrary and very rigid distinction between the private and the public mm. sphere in our modern life. And maybe Protestantism's got a lot to do with this. <laughs> incidentally, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church too, to a Protestant, the the line between the church, certainly in the in the sort of ecclesiology. And the civil sphere is is much more blurred, mm. and whether it's the kind of you know everything from running hospitals to schools, and I know Protestants do this too, but I think it's more of a character. Mm. Uh, in a strange way, it makes more. There, there's a sort of there's a there's a more coherent theology behind it in the Catholic mm. Church. In the past, there wasn't there there was a very blurred distinction between the civil ruler and and the bishop, and in some places. The bishop was kind of like a civil ruler. The the Vatican is a kind of sovereign state in so, at some mm. some level, and it's a big global uh, conglomerate in a way that even the biggest global evangelical uh, global Protestant <laughs> movements don't really quite have that reach. And for that kind of ecclesiological reason, and for certain theological reasons, I think it, it makes more sense for for a Catholic to to see the application of theology mm. in the public sphere, whereas I think it 
it's not impossible, but more work needs to be done for a Protestant because there is a much firmer line, certainly in my Protestant heritage. Uh, Protestants are much more comfortable with that distinction between the public and the private. And there's always angst and debate about what the appropriate role of the church is mm. in, in the public. In my experience, certainly teaching young Catholics, that certainly if they're conservative, it's like, well, of course the church should have a big role in the, like the more role it has, the better for society and that's appropriate. Like what has God redeemed? It's not just this sort of individual, you know, me and my friend <laughs> Jesus. That there, there, there is less certainty in the Protestant world about the way that these two are supposed to interact because there is this sense that there is something very different behind them. And so... For me, and, and again, I, I, I preface this by saying I have pro Protestant friends who, for whom this isn't, they don't think like this, but this is definitely a product of my upbringing. And mm. it was like you were reading me like a book before when you talked about the, the low church rationalism. Uh, I don't actually need or assume that the public realm needs to be sacred or have much of a sacred. For me... It's more of a question of having the, f the free space mm. to be a person that engages the sacred so that we can have churches and different stuff. I don't need my uh, the things I regard sacred to necessarily be in my political sphere, whereas I wonder if that um, there's more of an impulse for a Catholic <laughs> to see a role for that, whether for historical reasons, ecclesiological reasons or theological reasons. And I'm not even saying that this is a normative argument. It's just it's just a feature of who I am because of my upbringing. I can see pros and cons here because it does create all kinds of dilemmas mm. for this type of Protestant uh, thought, which is why you end up with all kinds of strange ways of trying to engage the public and lots of uncertainty about what it all all means because there isn't really this kind of theology of the public <laughs> behind it and there's no obvious role for the church because it really is just a private organisation of different people who are believers. And so you end up with this more negative defensive thing of trying to preserve space to be the church quietly <laughs> and not end up in prison for <laughs> preaching the the gospel. But I, I suppose the, the bottom line is that there's a certain sense in which Protestantism uh, can can I don't know this for a fact. This is speculation. Mm. It may um, make more sense, say, for someone living in a communist state, <laughs> because because actually you can separate the state totally mm. from your faith. That's not to say it's fun or good, <laughs> but I imagine much like Islam, the fact that that the church is sort of diminished compared to the role it is supposed to play for a Catholic, Orthodox, mm. Muslim, is theologically more challenging because it's not just about you as an individual and your faith, but you, you can kind of devolve to that as a, as a Protestant. And so I think for me what's driving some of my republicanism is I don't – I get my, my symbolism and mystery from my faith mm. and my church, but of course as a Protestant – I'm able in my mind, rightly or wrongly, to separate that <laughs> from the state and the public and the and the and the civil sphere. 
Yeah, and the idea of the connection between secularization and the Reformation, right? Uh, there has been a lot of work done in sort of tracing the genealogy yeah, yeah. Uh, from the Reformation. One might lead to the other. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, growing up as a Catholic, I've always looked to the Pope. Mm -hmm. Now, in a way, monarchy doesn't. It's like a monarch, right? Yeah, the, the Pope is a monarch, right? Yeah, the Pope yeah. is a monarch for the Catholic Church. Yeah. The so, same kind of symbolic function in many ways. Exactly the same. And all, all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly the same, right? So when I look at the monarchy, I don't feel the sense of strangeness. I think that's also part, that's largely because of my Catholic upbringing, right? Sure, all right, I'm the, the Catholic Church has a sovereign, the state has a sovereign. Mm. Now, the, the Pope uh, actually has a lot of features that monarchy has. So at the point... Now, the only thing that it does not have, it's the um, lineage, the, the uh, biological uh, reproduction. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. because... Uh, it's actually more democratic. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's partly because priests are celibate. Yeah. Or in the Middle Ages, they're supposed to be celibate. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't have the reproductive lineage, but other than that, then the church has to tweak so it. So it actually lacks that familial element. That's, it's not a microcosm of the family, is it? It is not, but that is because the Catholic Church thinks that the highest form of life, mm. as opposed to the lay form of life, the highest form of life is celibate chastity. It's the higher calling. And the, so they are indeed, they're actually separated out. They're not meant to be a microcosm of our lives because we are living the low lives. I should just add, lack of chastity has been the downfall of more than one monarchy, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't always stay in the family, if you know what I mean. But we, but we also share the same obsession with the sexual lives of the monarchy as the sexual <laughs> yeah. lives of the, of the priests. We, we want to control the sexual lives, but they're, they're there as the model of chastity and celibacy. So leaving that aside, because we can't actually reproduce that um, in the papacy because of this particular uh, chastity requirement. But other than that, when a pope becomes pope, their body is consecrated, right? They take mm. on a new name. Mm, yeah. Right, they become a new person and abdication until Pope Benedict abdicated. Abdication is equally unheard of until Benedict XVI abdicated. That they, they come to embody the, the church, the body of the church is embodied in the Pope. So, to a Catholic who is used to the idea of a Pope, the idea of a monarch is really like a short step <laughs> <laughs> from that. Um, most Protestant churches don't have that. I mean, the, the Queen is the supreme governor yeah. of the Church of England. I'm, I'm not quite sure. So how does that work in the Church of England? What's the role? Well, for Australian evangelicals, at least, it's similar to the way it functions in the Australian polity. 
they're out of mind, out of sight. <laughs> you don't, you could go your whole life without even realizing that, in some sense, mm. the British monarch is the head of the church that you're a part of. Because although the Australian church is part of the Anglican Communion, mm-hmm. not, only, not only is the national church independent, but the diocese function very independently mm. in Australia as well, which is one reason why you get high and low church, because there's actually a lot of autonomy built into the into the system and, and so, the book of common prayer which prays for the queen well that that's right you see if you if you go to a liturgical church right. then there will be prayers actually built in mm. uh and some other potentially liturgical practices that that acknowledge the monarch but of course you're not getting liturgy in low church <laughs> anglicans they they look much more like presbyterian or or um, Baptist services, just in terms of the the kind of look and feel at mm. the at the lowest end of um, of it. So it, it is. I think it would be possible to spend your whole life in an evangelical Anglican church. Mm. Certainly in Australia, it might be a bit different in the UK. And for that existence of the the monarch, the British monarch, just like. You can go through long stretches in Australian history, mm. you know, thinking that it's not a th- it's not real. You can do that also in terms of the monarch's role in the church. You could live your whole life and either not realize or never really be conscious of, even if you're told, that this monarch has any role whatsoever um, in the church. And it's interesting because this Queen Elizabeth II, by mm. all accounts, was a very serious real, genuine, mm. observant, devout Anglican Christian. Mm. And that, from what I can see, doesn't seem to impress evangelicals. And, of course, they're often obsessed with this intra-Anglican battle anyway. <laughs> and uh, certainly in the UK, there is, there is this uh, this is one interesting difference, actually, between Australia and the United Kingdom, as far as mm. I can see, or, or at least England that there you do get this high church Toryism that's very pro-monarchy and church establishment. Mm. But here the high church tends to be, uh, I mean, I'm overgeneralizing there. Mm. There are some conservative pockets, but it tends to have liberal theology be very democratic and very socially progressive. Mm. And it's probably more likely to to have strong Republican impulses, Mm. I would guess, just in terms of, because the Republican movement in Australia has traditionally been associated with the left. Mm. Uh, So uh, that's part of why I'm in favor of the minimalist position is that I am politically conservative. And that puts me really in no man's land because most conservatives in Australia are monarchists. Yeah, perhaps the Church of England, it's the model that uh, we (laughs) could land on. (laughs) Right, that is, in Australia, Australians could go through life without encountering... uh, in any way, shape, or form, the Queen. They don't even read the Constitution, so they don't even have to read about the Queen. Yeah. So that's uh, they could do that. And those who prefer, who likes the, the mystique of the monarchy could read royal gossip magazines and find out yeah. about Yeah. So that might actually be one way to conceptualize our current constitutional arrangement. We have uh, ended up using the same management model yeah. <laughs> as the Church of England. I 
I'm open to that. And not, not only am I open, but I kind of live my life like that. And you've <laughs> articulated in a strange way the kind of Republican I am. But of course, politically, mm. I think that's untenable because it, it then means retaining the status quo. And so the argument I think you would encounter from many Republicans mm. is... Well, that all sounds wonderful, but effectively you get the model you want and you're telling us to just be happy with the sort of de facto <laughs> element, but you're not willing to actually make the de facto <laughs> the real because we have to keep that thread for the dwindling minority of people like you mm. who perhaps because of your Catholicism or not uh, like this idea of the, the sort of embodiment of the mm. of the body politic and so that they might say it it's this generous gen, generous um dialectic dialectical model mm. where each can like you said look at look at it from the right angle and see what they want to see mm. in it but when it comes down to it, it it's the existing system that is retained and you're trying to deceive Republicans <laughs> into accepting the, the, the constitutional monarchy. That's not necessarily my argument, but I, th I think that that is is going to be the problem. Given there is this, uh, I think what drives a lot of the Republicanism is very much an identity mm. issue, and the de facto is not enough. It really the, they they actually object to some of the symbolism. Yeah. So I suppose if you are a Republican who wants to vote for the head of state, which you are not. Well, of course, yeah. Right? I think there, That's unacceptable. there, there, there something that they really want. I want to vote. Yeah. On the minimalist model, the difference is so slight, yeah. and hence minimalist, that I think the um, we're not... A monarchist might not be asking that much of yeah. a minimalist, but yeah. I, I, I recognize it's asking a lot of a Republican who wants to vote yeah. for the head of state because on this model, actually on neither of our models, do they get the vote. No, no. <laughs> anyway, so you're actually closer. Well, I think you're right. right? Because uh, we need to fight back those who want to vote well, and, for and the it, head of state. And in practice, when push comes to shove... Uh, I, and I would hope a lot of minimalist Republicans, would be uh, at one with constitutional monarchists <laughs> or just monarchists of any variety in trying to prevent what I think we would all, could all acknowledge would be a, a disaster yeah. of a directly, well, we could all, I mean, all of us monarchists and minimalist <laughs> Republicans could agree would be a disastrous and revolutionary and radical change to the Australian con constitution that does more than just that cut that thread. It creates a whole new garment that is has no <laughs> relation uh, to the old old garment. So I guess that's just a way of saying what you say is very pertinent mm. to one particular type of Republican, uh, but clearly wouldn't hold uh, any weight, I don't think, with the directly elected, which seems to be the majority within the Republican um, movement. They seem to dominate it. Yeah. So I'm glad that we have identified a common enemy. 
<laughs> well, nothing unites like a nothing common enemy. Nothing unites, right? So I think now we are we are we are on okay terms now. Okay. We so have now found, you want to finish? Now we have we've found <laughs> a common enemy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now that you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. And because um, we have so our difference is so slight, I think we should just focus on pushing back. Yeah. On this uh, popular elect, this those who want a popularly elected head of state, which I think will present greater security risk, yep. political risk, than the monarchy does, and that we should uh, be really careful of. Okay, so we can, I think we can finish this with this <laughs> summation of our conversation, which is that. There are some arguments in favour of remaining the constitutional monarchy that we are. There are some arguments in favour of modest change. But no arguments in favour of a popular... But we can agree that a directly elected is utterly evil <laughs> and should be opposed with... Truth and nail. Violence and, and every... Uh, <laughs> oh, we, all, we of course don't endorse physical violence. No, no, no. Only metaphorical. Rhetorical. Rhetorical. Rhetorical, Rhetorical. yeah. Joshua, I think that's a perfect note to end. We've resolved <laughs> the whole conflict that has bedeviled Australia about its uh, constitutional settled. footing. Uh, thanks for sharing your erudite perspective <laughs> on the monarchy. I'll be pondering a lot of what you've said into the future. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. It has been great fun.